Now that the kingdom is united and having complete dominion over God's enemies, David remembers his covenant promise to Jonathan and follows through on that oath. This is the 18th sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. A roll covenant reading coming from Samuel and chapter 9. Samuel and chapter 9, the entire text, the entire chapter, chapter 9, 1 through 13, 1 through 13. Beloved of the Lord, this is the word unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, David shows kindness to Jonathan's legacy even to his son, Mephibosheth. The prophet writes by inspiration, And David said, Is there yet any that is left of the house of Saul, that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? And there was one of the house of Saul, a servant, whose name was Ziba. And when he had called him unto David, the king said unto him, Art thou Ziba? And he said, Thy servant is he. And the king said, Is there not yet any of the house of Saul, that I may show the kindness of God unto him? And Ziba said unto the king, Jonathan hath yet a son, which is lame on his feet. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then king David sent and fetched him out of the house of Mekir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. And when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come to David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Behold thy servant. And David said unto him, Fear not, for I will surely show thee kindness for Jonathan thy father's sake, and will restore thee all the land of Saul thy father, and thou shalt eat bread at my table continually. And he bowed himself and said, What is thy servant that thou shouldst look upon such a dead dog as I am? Then the king called to Ziba, Saul's servant, and said unto him, I have given unto thy master's son all that pertain to Saul and to all his house. Thou therefore, and thy sons, and thy servants, shall till the land for him, and thou shalt bring in the fruits, that thy master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, thy master's son, shall eat bread always at my table. Now Ziba had fifteen sons and twenty servants. Then said Ziba unto the king, According to all that my lord the king hath commanded his servants, so shall thy servant do. As for Mephibosheth, said the king, he shall eat at my table as one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Mekah. And all that dwelt in the house of Ziba were servants unto Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth dwelt in Jerusalem, for he did eat continually at the king's table and was lame on both his feet. Paul writing to the church at Rome in Romans in chapter 9, beginning in verse 13, by the same spirit the apostle Paul states this, beginning in verse 13 through verse 16. By inspiration of God, he says, As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid, for he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. 
Thus far as the reading of God's most holy, inerrant, and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now David always had a soft spot in his heart for Saul, in spite of Saul's treachery toward the shepherd king. But he especially held Saul's son Jonathan in high esteem. David and Jonathan were not only like brothers, but were more than brothers, more than just like brothers to each other, even more than biological brothers. Now that David had been given the kingdom, as he unified the kingdom and has been now successful in achieving dominion status over the pagan nations round about, his covenant oath to Jonathan is about to come due. Now remember, as you will, in the last chapter, David had taken dominion over the nations round about, all of God's enemies, beginning with the Philistines, and he set up military installations, garrisons, as the scripture calls it, throughout the nations of his enemies, keeping them in subjection to David, in subjection to God's law, and in subjection to the kingdom. And it was in the midst of great sorrow, if you remember also, great sorrow and bitterness of heart when Jonathan and David last met in the field in 1 Samuel in chapter 20. So now that David is, is king, now that he has subdued all of God's enemies, he remembers his beloved Jonathan, knowing that he would never see his beloved brother David again, And knowing that David would one day become king over Israel, Jonathan, during their time in the field together, before David's exile, Jonathan begs for mercy on behalf of his family. We saw this in 1 Samuel chapter 20, beginning in verse 9 and following. But in verse 14, Jonathan says this, And thou shalt not only while yet I live show me the kindness of the Lord that I die not, but also... Jonathan says this to David, Thou shalt not cut off thy kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord had cut off the enemies of David, everyone from the face of the earth. So now that David has finally cut off all of the enemies of God from the face of the earth, he remembers the oath that he swore to Jonathan. So Jonathan, verse 16, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord even require it at the hand of David's enemies. And Jonathan caused David to swear again because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Now, not only was Jonathan concerned about the continuity of his family's bloodline and the tribe itself, the tribe of Benjamin, but Jonathan was also aware of several realities. Firstly, Jonathan knew that the kingdom would ultimately be given to David. God had told him as much. He knew that as king, David would would be required, as the king, he would be required in the glorious honor of God to rid the kingdom of all of God's enemies. And since Jonathan was in the family of Saul, and Saul finally had become one of God's enemies, Jonathan knew that his family was in jeopardy. Secondly, he also knew that Saul, his own father, was a tyrannical apostate which made his authority, Saul's authority, illegitimate. Whenever a man goes apostate, he becomes illegitimate. 
David would not only then seek dominion over God's enemies, he would also act as judge over the nation of Israel, and all illegitimate rulers would have to be judged, convicted, and then put to death along with any of the illegitimate family members who might seek to vindicate their family bloodline by overthrowing the the by overthrowing the legitimate ruler. And Jonathan understood that. What is ironic about the situation, about Jonathan's fear, is that rebellion would not come from the house of Saul, it would come from David's own lineage and the person of his son Absalom. Thirdly, Jonathan also knew that his son, his own posterity, might be in danger once David obtained the throne. Just because David loved Jonathan, that did not necessarily translate into David loving Jonathan's son. Jonathan's son was still part of the bloodline of Saul and would be regarded as continuing the tribal dynasty of the wicked Benjamites. Knowing this, Jonathan doesn't merely ask David for a promise to swear his posterity. He asks David to forge a covenant alliance, a covenant agreement with him before God. In other words, Jonathan wanted documentation of their agreement. Because if David swore to this agreement, Jonathan then would be satisfied that his own family line would be spared. Now you might ask the question, wasn't David's word good enough for Jonathan to be satisfied? They were like brothers. They loved each other more more than you could even imagine. Wasn't David's word enough? Was a covenant agreement before God necessary to secure that oath? Well, obviously the answer is yes. Even though Jonathan would believe David and David would give it willingly, sincerely. They needed a covenant document. Jonathan knew that once David was elevated to power and dominion, David was a man. He was just a man. He might forget his word. He might be pressured to destroy Jonathan's bloodline for fear of rebellion. Moreover, he might be incredibly politically pressured or militarily be pressured to rig the kingdom of all of God's enemies, which would place Jonathan's family in jeopardy. And Jonathan knew that. And so there was a political aspect to this. There had to be a security, a documentation of security. Furthermore, whenever we ask a political candidate who is seeking to be a leader of the people to promise this thing or promise that thing, we should make him swear before God that he will do that thing which he agreed upon. His word is never enough because there will be pressure upon the candidate, especially if he gets into the office. Because if he swears an oath, then you can hold him accountable because if he goes back upon his oath, then you could tell him he has violated an oath before God and will ultimately pay the consequences of God's judgments, especially because he's a minister of God within the civil realm. Now this may also be applied to the brethren, the church brethren as well. Whenever we give our word of agreement to one another, we should regard it, even though there's no documentation, we should regard it as an oath before God. If I say to so-and-so that I'm going to do such-and-such, I should be following through with my promise. Any violation of, of an oath before God will bring chastising results. It will bring the chastisement of God upon those who violate their promises. And so Jonathan and David, as it's called, they cut a covenant agreement in order to bind David to that stipulation which they both agreed upon. So now that David has conquered his enemies, all of his enemies, he remembers his oath. And it's interesting that that he remembers his oath. 
I mean, he could have been basking in the fact that the kingdom's united now and, and everything's good and I've got sons and daughters, I have heirs to my throne, everything's good, but he doesn't. He reminisces about his oath before God toward his beloved brother Jonathan. So David asks, Is there any that is left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to him for Jonathan's sake? Now this query shows a character trait, a character of David. He was a man of his word. He really didn't need that covenant. He had it, but he didn't really need it. He was a man of his word. He made an agreement, and now he was determined to keep it. Because he understood that oath-taking is serious business and should never be taken lightly since God views it very seriously. Because once an oath is taken, whenever you swear an oath, that oath is binding. So what does a covenant look like? What is the structure of the covenant? What does it look like? Well, firstly, it's a threefold covenant. It's always, whenever you take an oath, you're swearing before God, between God and the two parties, perhaps, if there's two parties involved. Secondly, God always acts as the overseer of that oath and remains actively involved in that agreement, making sure that it is kept faithfully. Thirdly, there is an actual agreement made which acts as the law of that agreement. You do this, God will do that. You do this, I will do that. You do that, I will do the other thing. If you don't, Fourth point, the sanctions will come into place. There are then, therefore, specific sanctions for each party to abide by with the necessary punishment for failing to abide by the oath or the blessings which come from keeping the oath. Now, finally, if the agreement is kept, there are always blessings, and those blessings are generational. There are always generational blessings for both parties, and this is what the oath between David and Jonathan was all about. It had generational efficacy. While there are certain extenuating circumstances where an oath can be rescinded or annulled, those circumstances are very few and far between. So before an oath is taken, before we swear an oath before God, it must be considered with the utmost severity, prayer, and counsel. And so an oath is a pledge. It's a pledge. It's a promise before God for the accomplishment of a thing or a pledge not to do a thing. It can be either between individuals and God or between two individuals or more individuals as in an alliance with God as always, with God as the divine witness. So an oath was usually made in order to confirm a covenant obligation, as we see in Deuteronomy chapter 27, when God set forth the law and then required Israel to confirm it with an amen. Notice what he says, Deuteronomy 27. And you think about the entire Old Testament, it's all about swearing an oath. As God says to Israel, will you do this? Yes. You sure? Yes. Are you positive? Yes. And then they didn't. Verse 9 of Deuteronomy 27 and following, And Moses and the priests, the Levites, spake unto all Israel, saying, Take heed and hearken, O Israel. This day thou art become the people of the Lord thy God. Notice that possessive idea. Thou shalt therefore obey the voice of the Lord thy God and do his commandments and his statutes which I command thee this day. And Moses charged the people the same day, saying, These shall stand upon Mount Gerizim to bless the people, when ye are come over Jordan, Simeon and Levi and Judah and Issachar and Joseph and Benjamin, and these shall stand upon Mount Ebal to curse Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So here's the situation. Part of the tribes go up to one mountain. There's a valley in between. A group of them go to the other mountain and they're going to talk with each other. One's going to declare the blessings of the oath. The other one's going to declare the curses. And the Levites 
shall speak and say unto all the men of Israel with a loud voice, Cursed be the man that maketh any graven or molten image, an abomination unto the Lord, the work of the hands of the craftsmen, and putteth it in a secret place, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be he that setteth light upon his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that removeth his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be he that maketh the blind to wander out of the way, and all the people shall say, Amen. And on and on and on. Here it is. You're swearing, you're swearing, you're swearing. This is what you will abide by. And then Moses finally says this. Cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of the law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Now what the people should have been saying is, Lord, have mercy upon us, we can't do these things. Now this exercise was a prelude to a more extensive list of blessings and cursings found in the next chapter of Deuteronomy in chapter 28. Israel was to confirm these sanctions by swearing an oath. If they departed from the oath's obedience, God promised to bring upon them his chastisements, his curses. Now sometimes an oath was taken either to bless or to curse. In other words, if I promise to obey God's commandments, then a blessing will follow. On the other hand, if I don't follow God's commandments, then chastisements will follow to the brethren and curses to the unbeliever. And so there's a connection between oath-taking and blessings and cursings. Whenever an oath of obedience is followed and maintained, there is real tangible outcome. I want to stress that point. Whenever we obey the word of God, I'm going to put it as simply as possible, when you obey the word of God, there are real tangible results. Likewise, when you disobey the word of God, when you disobey the commandments of the Lord, there are real tangible outcomes and those are always negative. The spankings will begin when Christ cursed the fig tree. He was swearing an oath that nothing would grow upon it. He was cursing it. His oath was the swearing of a curse and it produced a real tangible result. The tree withered. It was a real tangible result. The problem with Christendom today is that it no longer believes that an oath has any real efficacy. Oh, I'll swear to this or I'll swear to the other thing and I'll just do whatever I want. But if the church took seriously their oath of obedience and their obligation of kingdom building and advancing the crown rights of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the world would be a very different place than it is today. I can guarantee that. Now consider some examples of modern day oath taking. Baptism. Whenever a child is baptized, both the parents and the witnesses of that ceremony are asked to swear before God that they will do everything within their power to train up that child in the fear and the admonition of the Lord. That's their oath. This means that the parents are obliged to search the scriptures for God's directives in discipling and disciplining the child according to the word of God. They are not allowed because the oath does not give them that latitude, they are not allowed to be delinquent in God's pattern for the training of that child. This means the child is to hear the word of God, read the word of God, have the word of God read to them, so that eventually they will understand the word of God, and they too then would be accountable to the word of God and the sanctions that it declares. The congregation is also held responsible to pray for the family and to observe that family as they rear the child and offer help or possible suggestions when that family seems to be delinquent 
in the proper execution of biblical training or when the family is doing the right thing. We need to encourage that family. And so parents, when you bring your little ones to be baptized, you are opening up yourself to a serious responsibility and you are swearing an oath and you will be held culpable. If you're, sh- if you're showing yourself, if you show yourself to be remiss in that oath, others in the congregation are also obliged to offer guidance or correction if necessary. This is especially the task of elders. They are there to care and watch over you, to despise their counsel. It's to despise their office, which also brings into question your oath. Let's consider now a profession of faith. Either when an adult is baptized, because when an adult is baptized, they're professing, they're swearing an oath that they're going to follow the ways of God. Or when an individual decides that, that a great epiphany has happened and they realize they need to, to, to follow Jesus, they swear an oath. That too is an oath. A profession is an oath. And so whenever we state that we are Christians, just to say, I'm a Christian, we are then obligating ourselves to the strict responsibilities of obedience which the law of God commands. If our lives do not show a concerted effort of loving God and obeying Christ as our oath suggests, then, of course, who are we? We're hypocrites. There's no real efficacy in our sworn oath. There's no real evidence. There's no real fruit. There's no real passion. There's no real striving. There's no panting after the things of God because there needs to be efficacy. There needs to be efficacy in our oath if it's a true if it's a true relationship with Christ. Now the Lord's Supper affirms that also. The Lord's Supper affirms an oath. And so whenever we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are actually reaffirming our oath of allegiance to the Lord and His Holy Word. But then there's a matrimonial oath. Now this oath is a little different. A little different than baptism or even a profession of faith. Not even an oath like the Lord's Supper. It's very unique. Because it joins two individuals together as one, whereas the others are individualized oaths made before God. The matrimonial oath, the marriage oath, is also much more serious since the violation of that oath not only is a sin, but it is considered a capital crime, a capital offense. The reason for this is because the marriage covenant maintains an earthly institution vital for the health of the family, practically speaking, and the nation, as well as the human race. Destroy the biblical marriage, and everything falls apart. The whole fabric of the universe begins to erode. That is why destroy the biblical marriage, and you destroy the world. And that is why marriage should never be entered into without much prayer and counsel. A good friend and God-fearing man, Dr. Robert Fugate, comments on why God deals so harshly with any violation or violence against the family. He comments on Deuteronomy 27 and observes this, quote, Six curses are spoken against those undermining the family. The second curse is directed against those undermining the authority structure of the family. That is the fifth commandment. The third curse is directed against those undermining the economic viability of the family. Land, which includes family inheritance and family business, addresses issues of the eighth commandment. Further down the list, four curses are spoken against those undermining the sexual integrity of the family, end quote. Destroy the family. You destroy the world. David understood what an oath before God meant. And he had no hesitation in swearing that oath with Jonathan for the benefit of Jonathan's posterity. So now, 
that the kingdom's united, and David is now king of Israel. His enemies put to servitude. David remembers his oath. And David asks, is there any yet left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? He's ready to make good his promise. So David inquires as to whom of the house of Saul through the lineage of Jonathan would receive the blessing. Now, now providentially, there happened to be one. Jonathan's son, whose name was Mephibosheth. Now consider the situation. We see this in 2 Samuel 9 too. And there was of the house of Saul a servant whose name was Ziba. And when they had called him unto David, the king asks, are there any left? He says, yes. And his name is Mephibosheth. But... Unfortunately, sadly, the young man is lame on his feet. And it's interesting that not only do we see it here in verse 3, but it's repeated at the end in verse 13. Here is a young man of Jonathan's house and of the household of Saul that was lame on his feet. He couldn't walk. He was a cripple. Now, a bit of information provides us with two things to be considered. Number one. Here is a young man who is obviously a cripple. That was the thing that Ziba was pointing out. Yeah, but maybe, I don't know, we got a Jonathan son here, but he's a cripple. You really want to show kindness to a cripple? So here's a man who's crippled. He can't walk right. He can't walk properly, and therefore he will obviously, if he's a cripple, he's going to need constant care by a nurse. David would have to provide for this young man for the rest of his life, which might have proposed somewhat of a burden to David. Furthermore, Mephibosheth, because he couldn't do anything, couldn't walk anywhere, couldn't do anything, couldn't plow the field. He really couldn't give anything to value, of value. He couldn't give anything of value to David. He couldn't advance the kingdom. You know, David had to provide everything. Do you really want a cripple? Do you really want this young man? Now, this was probably a test to see if David really meant what he said. Would he really want to care for this young man as his oath was set up. Because it would have been very easy if Jonathan's son was healthy. David wouldn't have to be burdened with him, caring for him, because he could care for himself. He could just send him away and be done with it. Here's a house, have a nice time. That wasn't the case. The boy was deformed. His care would be an inconvenience. Like so many babies that are born deformed, Jonathan's son would require sacrifice on David's part. But because David was a God-fearing man, he would not take the deformed boy's life like so many barbaric doctors of our pagan postmodern world advise. David swore an oath to save the life of the young boy in spite of his deformity. He was putting himself out there for the young man because he had sworn an oath to preserve life and to preserve David's bloodline. And so he follows through. Even though it might be an inconvenience to David, he follows through with his promise. King then inquires additional information for the express purpose of bringing him into the house of the king to show him loving kindness and mercy as he had promised to Jonathan. We see this in verses 4 and 5. And the king said unto him, Where is he? And Ziba said unto the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodibar. Then King David sent and fetched him out of the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, from Lodibar. Now, that's awkward language. Okay, so he was out of the house of Machir, he was the son of Amiel, and he was from this area at Lodabar. God doesn't put anything in the scriptures that are unimportant. As to the second consideration, we have to ask, 
as always, is there any gospel significance here? Is Mephibosheth signifying or symbolizing a gospel message, something of a spiritual truth? And as we have seen time and time again, God uses names for a very specific purpose, a very specific reason in order to show some gospel or spiritual reality. And the names here are no less significant. Consider where Mephibosheth is. He is in the house of Machir. Now, to us, that doesn't really seem like important. But Machir is actually to be understood as the name of, quote, a daughter that has been married into slavery. The implication of the name is a daughter of enslavement. That's where Mephibosheth is from. Okay, that's where his his lineage is is from. He's in the house of of Machir. He's he's situated in this house of slavery. Now, Machir's father's name is Amiel, which means the people or the congregation of God. Sometimes it's referred to as the nation of God. So here you have Mephibosheth in the house of the daughter of slavery amidst the congregation or the nation of God. And Mephibosheth finally is in the city of Lodabar, which means pastureless. In other words, without any pasture. In other words, a desert. Geographically, this might have been more of a desert place since the name means it no, has no green pasture. Now together, these names seem to be referring to God's people who are identified as daughters, who have been married into slavery as a result of the fall of Adam, slaves to sin, and who live in a desert place. We're a parched place. That's what Zion means. This is where Mephibosheth resides. This is part of who he is. And this is where all of God's people reside before they are brought, before Christ the King, to sit at his table as the sons of God, as Mephibosheth was to sit at the table of David. So as a result of the fall, by nature, the elect of God are the daughters of God, but are married to the condemnation of the law as slaves, living in a desert place, in need of the king's mercy and loving kindness. Mephibosheth symbolizes the people of God. In fact, his name, the name itself, means shameful. Or the one the one who is full of shame. Some translations speak of Mephibosheth as translated as one who is full of shame, who has been scattered abroad by the wind. Mephibosheth therefore represents God's people who are enslaved by sin and under the condemnation of the law, but who are now by the mercy of the king are brought to the king's table as sons. Now hearing from Ziba, who by the way was a treacherous man, as we'll see later on, David sends for Mephibosheth. Now once Mephibosheth arrives before David, notice his immediate response he renders the king all of the honor due his office and falls upon his face before the king. Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, was come unto David, he fell on his face and did reverence. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold thy servant. Here's a young man that understands the power of the king. A a man full of shame, a crippled man. But he understood the power of the king and the great mercy of David. He understood that the king had the power of life and death. And here David represents the Lord Jesus Christ, while Mephibosheth represents the elect of God who understand that they are to bow before him in reverence and holy fear as servants of the Most High God, thanking him for his incredible mercy. 
But note this, and, and you just got to love this. How the king greets Jonathan's crippled son. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Over and over and over, whether it was in the Old Testament as a theophany, the pre-incarnate Christ, or after the Christ was incarnate, over and over he said, fear not, don't be afraid. Even as the shepherds were fearing at that night, the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ said, fear not, for behold, a child is born unto you. In the city of David is Christ the Lord. Fear not. These are the words of the king to all of those who he has placed his love and mercy upon. David is just fulfilling his promise to Jonathan. In the same way, however, as Christ fulfills his promise to God by redeeming a people for himself and by making them to sit and eat at his banqueting table. Now consider just for a minute the particulars of David's mercy. First he says, don't be afraid. And this is the salutation of God. This is the salutation of the king. Even though the king has the power to kill and make alive, his promises of life are here in the words, fear not. Secondly, David not only promises no harm will come to Mephibosheth, he tells him that he is going to show him kindness for the sake of his oath to his father. He's going to abide by his oath. In the counsels of the Godhead, Christ swore an oath that he would save a people and then the Father sends the Christ. It's the same idea, oath-taking within the Godhead. The Hebrew word used here for kindness is actually the phrase merciful kindness or loving kindness or showing pity. David is about to pity Mephibosheth. He's crippled. He can't do anything. And yet for the oath that he took, he's going to bring Mephibosheth into his house. Thirdly, David then promises Mephibosheth that he will, and this is incredible, he's going to restore all the lands of his grandfather Saul. He's going to restore everything that Saul had destroyed, that everything that was messed up by the, the illegitimacy of his reign. And this is a very important point. To be given the land of Saul was a tremendous blessing. Now remember, Saul is a type of Adam, the first Adam, David the last Adam, signifying the first and the last. And when Christ redeems his people, he too promises that he will restore all the land that Adam lost so that the saints become possessed of the earth. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ on the Mount of Olivet, he said very, very clearly, very passionately, he declared, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, the earth that Adam lost and which Christ redeemed. Herein we have in this story the gospel. When Adam sinned, the earth fell to the wicked. Adam became an illegitimate ruler. He had to be taken over by the Christ. He had his, his posterity had to be redeemed. And the world had to be reclaimed by the Lord Jesus. So that by his victory, the meek would indeed inherit the earth that Adam destroyed. Finally, and this is perhaps the most amazing part of the promise. David tells Mephibosheth, that he will not only eat at the king's table for the rest of his life continually, not even that he'll get all of the lands of his grandfather Saul, but he's going to be as one of the king's sons. That's the promise of the Lord Jesus Christ to his people. Not servants, but sons. And Jesus tells his disciples and us the very same thing when he says in Luke chapter 22, verse 28 through 30, 
Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, so that ye may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. John tells us this. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then John, later on, as he writes his epistle, he says this, 1 John 3, 1, Behold, open your eyes, behold, consider this, behold, amazing, behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. David then calls Ziba and compels him to carry out his decree in behalf of Mephibosheth. So then the king calls Ziba, Saul's servant, and says, you're going to serve Mephibosheth. You're going to till the land for him. You're going to bring forth the fruit for him so that the master's son may have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, you can sit with me as one of my sons. Ziba is to be the servant of Mephibosheth along with his 15 sons and 20 servants. We then learn in verse 12 that Mephibosheth also had a young child whose name was Micah. Three things stand out pertaining to this information. Jonathan through Mephibosheth and Micah had his bloodline secured as David had promised. In other words, his lineage did not end with Mephibosheth. There was the continuity of the family line. Micah's name actually means one who is like God. By implication, this son of Mephibosheth is continuing a God-fearing legacy for Jonathan and his father. And finally, Ziba is compelled to serve both Mephibosheth and his son in the same way as the heathen of Adam's race are to one day serve the saints of God Jeremiah explains that there will be a day, or maybe in our time, may not be in our time, maybe in some future time. But he promises, as God swears this oath, he promises that there will be a day when the wicked will no longer oppress the just as it is today, but will be compelled to serve the Lord and the people of his kingdom. Notice Jeremiah 30, verses 8 and 9. For it shall come to pass in that day. What day is that? The day of the Lord. When Christ finally brings victory because of his incarnation and the work at Pentecost. For it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off thy neck and will burst thy bonds and strangers shall no more serve themselves of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up unto them. And David understood that very well. For he writes in Psalm 102, beginning in verse 16, When the Lord shall build up Zion, the parched place, he shall appear in his glory. He will regard the prayer of the destitute or the crippled and not despise their prayer. This shall be written for the generation to come and the people which shall be created shall praise the Lord. Notice that generational thrust, the people that will be created, the sons, the grandsons, the great-grandsons and the sons to 10,000 generations following. For he hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary. From heaven did the Lord behold the earth to hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death, 
to declare the name of the Lord in Zion and His praise in Jerusalem when the people are gathered together and the kingdoms to serve the Lord. By the mercy and loving kindness of King David, Mephibosheth sits at the table of the king as his own beloved son. And yet the scripture clearly reminds us once again that he's still lame on his feet. That reminds us that even though we sit as sons of God at the table of Christ, especially when we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we're at the table of, of, of the Supper of the Lord, we are reminded that even though we are the sons of God, we are still lame and unable to do anything without the help of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul tells us this in Philippians 2 verse 13, unless we be conceited and puffed up in our own our own minds to think that we could do anything without God, Paul tells us this, for it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. May God do so as we continue to abide by our oath to love and serve him as we advance his kingdom on earth, in time, and in history. And this we shall do, God helping us, unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.